Welcome to the All Things Protest Podcast. I'm Christian Curran, and I'm here today with my co-hosts Olivia Lynch and Rob Sneckenberg. As we prepare to close out the year, today we're going to talk about just a few of what we've picked as the year's most interesting decisions. Joining us today for that discussion, we have special guest Anish Vora, partner in Kroll's Government Contracts Group, and Zach Schroeder, an associate from the group that has a robust protest practice as well. Anish and Zach, welcome and thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. The decisions we've chosen to highlight today are some that have been widely reported and others that we think may have flown under the radar, but carry important principles for protests generally. With that, I'll turn it over to Rob to discuss the first decision, PAE Parsons Global Logistics Services v. United States. Right. Thanks, Christian. So the PAE decision caught our eye because it dealt with an area that seemed pretty well settled, that the Court of Federal Claims doesn't have jurisdiction over task and delivery order protests. But then here we have an exception. And we've asked Anuj to come and talk about it because Anuj, after litigating the case, I think you might have some insights into how things turned out and what some of the implications for this case might be. Could you start for our readers, give a little overview of what the case held? Yeah, thanks, Rob. So the case arises from the Army's procurement for the Logistics Civil Augmentation Program, number five, which is more colloquially called a log cap. And what the Army did was tether a bunch of different IDIQ awards to individual task order awards in six different geographic locations. And so we filed a protest at GAO challenging one of the award decisions. Um, before GAO could reach a decision on the merits, one of the other protesters moved the court to the Court of Federal Claims. And so our GAO protest got dismissed. And so we wanted to go to the court. The difficulty in doing so was these were ostensibly task order awards, and we did discuss them as such in our GAO protest. And so when we got to the court, or when we thought about going to the court, there was some sort of tension as to whether or not we could still bring them. Well, yeah, I mean, the Federal Circuit has some pretty clear case law that says task and delivery orders can't be protested at the court. Isn't that right? That is right. But the interesting thing here is what the Army did was in your typical task and delivery order protest, there is previously a overarching IDIQ that was awarded and the task orders are subsequently awarded against that IDIQ. So there's no question that task orders typically cannot be protested, the Court of Federal Claims, but there is also no question that the original IDIQ awards can be protested. So this case presented the interesting question of, well, what happens if the IDIQ and the task order awards are awarded at the exact same time? And our position was, if you tether these two things together, certainly the court can exercise its jurisdiction over the umbrella IDIQ awards, because if it didn't, you would have a very circular and strange result where even though an IDIQ award was potentially improperly awarded, because it was awarded in connection with a task order, which itself must have been improperly awarded because the overarching contract was improperly awarded, you wouldn't be able to hear either. And that didn't make any sense to us. Well, it didn't really make any sense to the judge either, right? Since, since the judge agreed with you. Right. And the funny thing was Judge Smith opened his decision by saying this case presents a fact pattern not seen by the court before. And it's not because this fact pattern has not existed before. It's not unusual for an agency to award both an IDIQ 
and an initial task order at the same time. What was unusual here was the government claiming that we couldn't challenge the original IDIQ because it was awarded with a task order. I mean, that is a position the government has never taken. And if the government was right, and, and Judge Smith recognized this, it would create a blueprint for agencies to make challenges to IDIQ awards at the Court of Federal Claims impossible. All they would have to do is award an initial task order in conjunction with the IDIQ award itself, which certainly was not the purpose of the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, which created the limitations on the court's task order jurisdiction. So what's the overall takeaway for our listeners here? Is this going to open the floodgates to new protests at the court, or, or is it really going to foreclose that argument that you were just talking about DOJ making? Yeah, I think it's the latter. At the outset, it looked like maybe we were making sort of the creative argument and trying to kind of limit or cabin the FASA limitation. But really, if you think about it, it's the government that was trying to expand that limitation on the court's jurisdiction in a way that had never previously been seen. So I think what this does is sort of reaffirm that FASA's limitation applies to task orders and only task orders. If there's an IDIQ that is in play, the court can still exercise its jurisdiction over that award. And Robin, Anish, I think one other point that was very interesting in that case is that in Judge Smith's decision, he also deals with the government's secondary argument that PAE Parsons would have been precluded as an awardee of a different task order, an IDIQ, under the same award structure. And as Anish pointed out, given the unique circumstances here, Judge Smith found that because the IDIQs were handed out simultaneously with the task orders, same evaluation, no distinction, nothing different, that essentially PAE was seeking the award of a different, more valuable contract. And so that takes it out of the traditional awardee standing analysis where you have multiple awardees that have or are vying for the same rights, the same IDIQ. The IDIQs here were actually different in and of themselves because they were tethered directly to these differing value task orders. That's a great point, Christian. Yeah, it's a great point, Christian. Why don't we turn now to our second case? Thanks, Rob. So I'm going to talk about the Leupold Stevens decision that was issued at GAO. The public decision came out just about a month ago. And that decision deals with a protest of a contract modification. As most protest lawyers know, you can't normally protest a contract modification at GAO. It's expressly carved out as an issue that GAO will not consider. But GAO can consider it in the limited circumstance where the protest is challenging an action, a contract modification that exceeds the scope of the awarded contract, which essentially means that you're allowed to challenge it when the agency is using a contract modification to avoid competitive procedures where they otherwise would have to follow them. So this procurement involved a very particular component of a rifle scope incorporated into the squad variable powered scope that the Navy was procuring for small arms used by special operations forces. And the RFP contains very specific terms regarding future upgrades to the scope reticle, which is the portion of the scope that actually has the target on it for simple purposes. So the RFP indicated that future upgrades to the scope reticle were contemplated and allowed, but only if they involved changes just to the reticle and could be incorporated without 
any other changes to the scope itself. Sig Sauer won the initial best value contract mainly due to its low price. And its price was a lot lower because it offered a cheaper wire-based reticle as opposed to a glass-etched reticle that Leupold and many of the other offerors proposed. After the award, lo and behold, the Navy decided that the wire reticle really wasn't going to satisfy their function, and they modded Six Hours contract to upgrade to a glass-etched reticle that had been developed by a different manufacturer. And importantly here, the change required other changes to the scope specifically to the illumination functions in order to integrate the glass-etched reticle technology. And it also resulted in a price increase of 77%. So Leupold argued that this was clearly outside the scope of what the RFP contemplated in terms of future upgrades and the fact that you needed to overhaul the component enough that it changed the price by 77%, that that was obviously outside the scope. The Navy argued that the reticle change provision meant only changes to the external portions of the scope, not the internal. Unsurprisingly, GAO shot down that defense and found fully in favor of loophole, really emphasizing that the plain language of the contract prohibited this type of modification, and there was really no other way to read it. That combined with the fact that the price change was so great really led GAO in the, in the only direction it could go. And GAO also noted here that in terms of prejudice, Leupold was clearly prejudiced here because Leupold and the other offerors all offered this glass that's radical to begin with. And had they known that they could have offered a cheaper technology and it would have just been modded out later, contrary to the terms of the solicitation, then they could have changed their approach. So it's an interesting case in that had that provision on the future changes to the reticle not been involved, this could have potentially had a different outcome. GAO really focused on the provisions of the RFP that prohibited or that held that any future change to the scope meant that it was outside the scope. So for contractors that are looking at current contracts where modifications are being made, it's a very tough road to hoe usually, but if you can key in on a, a solicitation provision that kind of expressly lays out what the changes are and use that as the basis for your argument, you might have a chance to bring a successful protest at GAO on a contract modification. Thanks, Christian. And now to get us back on track with task order cases, Zach, why don't you talk about the next decision? Thanks, Rob. I'll talk about Safar Partners, Inc., which is a rare sustain of an unmitigated impaired objectivity, OCI. Basically here, it was a protest of a task order issued under a GSA federal supply schedule contract. And the task order involved the Department of Education's support of charter schools program, which is called the National Charter School School Resource Center contract. So fall, the protester was the incumbent contractor on that, and award was made to Manhattan Strategy Group. We'll call them MSG. MSG's subcontractor, West Ed, was also performing a charter schools monitoring and data collection contract for the same department. Now, under that contract, it was responsible for conducting site visits of charter schools and producing monitoring reports which recommended technical assistance for particular grantees. It wasn't responsible for producing the final report, but most of what it did was recommend schools for award of further assistance. So, Zach, how does West Ed's role in the monitoring contract relate to the contract that's the subject of the protest? 
So under West Ed's performance, it would be recommending schools to receive assistance. And then under the protested contract, that contractor would be actually providing the assistance. So the issue here is that the awardee subcontractor on a contract that was currently performing would be recommending assistance, and then the awardee would be actually providing that assistance. So that seems like a pretty clear conflict. How did the agency try to defend this, Zach? So the agency initially relied on the vendor's self-certifications. After the protest, it went back and looked at it, and it explained that the sub MSG didn't have the final say over what was recommended when it prepared the reports. The agency would be preparing the final reports. And then under the recommendation uh, resource contract, which was the one protested, the agency again would have the final say there in granting the assistance. So despite the fact that these businesses would be doing most of the work, preparing the reports, and then actually granting the assistance, the fact that the agency had to sign off on it was enough to overcome that. That's what the agency argued, but what did GAO think about that? GAO didn't buy that. They said that even where the agency is not solely relying on the contractor's input and where the government retains ultimate decision-making authority, there's still an impaired OCI where the firm's ability to render impartial advice to the government would be undermined by competing interests. And the competing interests here and that ability to funnel work from one contract to the other represented an OCI. And Zach, it didn't seem that there was any talk about a waiver or anything like that in the decision. Do you think there's any particular reason for that here? I mean, well, the government, they had a lower level member submit a declaration saying that the performance work statement on the monitoring contract didn't involve or didn't allow recommendations that would be granted under this contract. So the government didn't even consider a waiver. It was basically arguing that this was also an impossible situation under the terms of the contract. GAO looked into that and they said they didn't conclude that, that was actually the case, that the PWS could allow for the possibility of work to be funneled from one business to the other. Right. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. I mean, there was an interesting footnote at the end the way GAO characterized it and the agency in litigating it, it almost seemed like they admitted that the agency official who was reviewing this just didn't understand what was done under the scope of work that was being undertaken in the new contract and how it could interact. So that must have played a role in the, the, how the agency defended this here. Yes, that definitely played a role in it. And the fact that they couldn't get their answer straight on what work was actually to be performed played into GAO's analysis. Thanks, Zach. That's certainly an interesting and rare OCI sustained for this year. Olivia, what have you got for us to round it out? I chose a recent decision out of GAO in which GAO sustained on two separate substantive bases, one a technical evaluation challenge and one a challenge to the reasonableness of a past performance evaluation. The case is called Van Line Bunkering, Inc., it concerns a procurement for transportation of fuel and diesel by tug and barge. And the sustain on the technical basis caught my attention because GAO basically found that the agency ignored countervailing evidence in the awardee's proposal that called into question whether they met material RFP requirements. That's really um, interesting because normally... The significant countervailing evidence cases, for those who aren't familiar with the doctrine at GAO, 
normally are used at GAO to uphold a decision where an agency, GAO will normally find an agency shouldn't have been on notice that a representation was false or, or could have been misleading because of the fact that the agency doesn't have significant countervailing evidence in front of it to call into question the awardee's assertions in their proposal. So Olivia, how did GAO find here that the agency was on notice of significant countervailing evidence? So it all came out of the awardee's technical proposal. The requirement at issue was that offers had to propose a tank barge with a capacity of not less than 10,000 barrels, but not more than 20,000 barrels, as well as to propose an on-call barge that satisfied the same capacity requirements. And what happened here was the awardee, the first barge they proposed was fine, but their on-call barge, although the narrative of the technical proposal said that the capacity came in under that 20,000 barrel limit, the awardee had included a certificate of inspection from the Coast Guard that was required for other purposes, but that COI said that the on-call barge proposed actually exceeded 20,000 barrels, and it had a capacity of 22,600 barrels. And basically, the agency's first defense was that the solicitation didn't allow for evaluation of capacity from the COI, but GAO found that it wasn't prohibited by the solicitation, so the agency should have considered it. And it seems like at some point, the agency did put in a declaration from the awardee CEO that said that COIs are not supposed to be the indicator of a vessel's capacity. That's not what the purpose of the COI is. And that the on-call barge that the awardee had proposed had actually undergone subsequent modifications that lowered its barrel capacity and actually put it under the limit in the RFP. The problem with that was, although it was now in the record, the agency hadn't obviously considered it during the evaluation. And even in briefing, it doesn't sound like the agency explained how that would have impacted the evaluation. So even though that would have been like Boeing Sikorsky statements that GAO may have not considered anyways, it doesn't even sound like the agency tried to explain it. So that's really interesting. So basically, they had to submit this COI information, as I understand it, to confirm ownership or as part of the ownership and control portion. Mm -hmm. And GAO found that because that information was provided as part of that other portion of the proposal, and yeah. it had an impact on the capacity requirement, or it had, it provided it evidence. Into question, the, yeah, it called right. into question what the technical proposal otherwise said about the capacity. So yeah, that caught my eye. But then the real reason I covered this case is because it is on theme with what we've been talking about past performance for basically two years, which is this idea of reliance on the past performance of affiliates it can be a great boon if you do it right to be able to rely on the past performance of your affiliates or of your parent, but if not explained cleanly and clearly in the proposal, can give rise to sustains such as these. So what happened here was the awardee submitted PPQs for three references, and in those PPQs, the awardee listed itself, the parent company, as the contractor that performed. And that's oftentimes where companies get into trouble is when they're identifying like who actually performed the past performance. Oftentimes, big corporations with lots of wholly owned subsidiaries can think of themselves as we are one unit. We operate 
together. So you can list the name of the awardee as the contractor on a PPQ and it should be fine. But it looks like that caught the attention of protesters' counsel here because in other parts of the proposal, it was clear that the parent didn't own any of the barges that were going to be used for performance and they operated through wholly owned subsidiaries. So that gave rise to the question of were the PPQs actually for the awardee's performance? And at some point during briefing, it looks like the awardee confirmed that its subsidiaries had actually performed the contracts that were at issue in the PPQs. But ultimately, where GAO came out was even though the proposal made clear that the awardee owned the barges and was going to use barges owned by its wholly owned subsidiaries, there was just not sufficient explanation about how the subsidiaries whose past performance they were using were going to perform on this contract such that the agency could have reasonably relied on that past performance. And so that's very interesting, Olivia. Yeah. So if I understand this correctly, the awardee was able to propose the barges and satisfy the requirement to show that they could reasonably rely on using those particular assets for this coming contract, right? Mm -hmm. But GAO found that although that satisfied that technical requirement to propose the barges, that there wasn't evidence of how the companies themselves were going to be used for performance? Yeah, basically under GAO's affiliate past performance doctrine, corporate ownership of subsidiaries of assets owned by the subsidiaries, that's insufficient for attribution of past performance. There must be some discussion about how those resources are going to be provided or relied upon for contract performance such that those entities will have meaningful involvement. And what GAO said was that the awardee's proposal failed to connect the performance described in the PPQs with the subsidiaries it was proposing to rely on for performance here. And for a lot of big companies that do government contracts through various subsidiaries, I think this idea that you have to explain the connections between wholly owned subsidiaries and like what they're going to do for purposes of one particular contract, it's a hard idea for people to wrap their minds around because so many people within a larger company just think like, well, we're all part of company X. So of course, if we're relying on subsidiary X's past performance, we will use them if we need them. But as the case law continues to show, GEO is not backing away from its articulation of what a offerer must show in its proposal for an agency to reasonably rely on some entity other than the awardee's past performance. At the end of the day, I read this case as really like a documentation issue, and I'm not sure this ultimately will change the outcome of this procurement, but nobody wants to be in the situation where they're delayed in performing because they could have done something more clearly in their proposal and they didn't. And so I just wanted to flag this as a reminder going into the new year, always write clear proposals. It's the obligation of you as the offerer. Thanks, Olivia. That's a great point. And I think one that dovetailed nicely with our discussion at our recent Northern Virginia breakfast on corporate affiliation and past performance issues. And we'll be sure to continue to cover this and other topics in the new year on the podcast and upcoming webinars and meetings. And keep an eye out for our January podcast, where we'll cover our New Year's resolutions giving you tips and tricks for how to approach procurement in 2020. As always, thanks for listening.
The All Things Protest podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash allthingsprotest. Thank you.